know, sometimes I'm just overwhelmed by the gospel. As I was singing that last song, I was thinking to myself, what must it have been like for Christ? Knowing eternal rest and glory and a perfect relationship with God the Father. And what must that conversation have been like? Where they're saying to one another, which one of us is going to go and redeem mankind? And his willingness to humble his self. Take on human flesh and to to bear our sins on the cross, to bear the weight of the Father's wrath for us, to leave all the comfort of heaven. It's overwhelming sometimes, isn't it? It's overwhelming to think that He would do that for us. Praise God that He did and made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father or without his sacrifice, we would be as lost as the day is long. Praise God for that. Last week we were talking about the subject of anger, and I, I entitled the message, Anger is Not the Answer. And uh, this is part two of that message. We're we're still in the book of James, verses uh, 19 to 21 of chapter 1. How many of you like taking exams? Yeah? I see one hand. I remember in seminary, uh, that sick feeling you had where you, you study and study and study and you put together a study guide and One of the hardest classes over there is called NTI, New Testament Introduction. And you think to yourself, hey, this is an introductory class. I got this, right? Uh, But what it is is determining authorship and dates and and writing occasions and and, uh, textual criticism of the entire New Testament and how the New Testament was formed from the various uh, Greek manuscripts and and papyrus, and, and uh, from older codexes, etc., and how the New Testament came together. And if you think that class was easy, I got news for you. <laughs> that was the hardest class I took there. But I remember one semester, uh, well, when I was in this class, I remember we were preparing for an exam uh, on higher criticism, and... Uh, you know, the professor gave us a sheet of paper with 33 questions on it and said, these are the questions that will be asked of you, and you'll have to write out essays for your answers. And then he had beside each one the time limit of how much time you would have for each question. This is a 10-minute question, this is a 15-minute question, etc. And no answers. You had to go find the answers, uh, formulate the answers into a study outline and then and then try to memorize it all (laughs) and I thought okay I'm I'm way ahead of the game on this one I got this nailed Uh, and then uh, two days before the test he gives us a second page with another 33 questions (laughs) and I said is this for the following test and he said no that's this test too so here you are with 66 questions that could be asked of you on textual criticism and 
and you have to write essays for all of them, and you have to memorize all this information. I literally had a 100-page study guide for that exam. And then you think, I'm ready, okay? I've, I've stayed up every night. I've memorized all this information. I'm going to go in this thing. I'm going to nail it. And you, and you open up the exam booklet, and you go, oh, my gosh, I, I studied the wrong things. And there's that sick feeling in your stomach that I am going to fail this test miserably. And how am I ever going to fudge my way through and, and just write a lot so that it looks like I know what I'm talking about? Well, uh, needless to say, God was gracious to me, but I really hate taking exams uh, because I'm always afraid I'm going to miss the answer by a long shot. I actually still have dreams about that. (laughs) Nightmares. But I was thinking about that. Uh, Listen to some of these examples from children who came into an exam and didn't really study for it and had to get clever with their answers. On the subject of chemistry, the question was this. The first cells were probably blank. Child answered, lonely. (laughs) In the subject of mathematics, to change centimeters to meters, you blank. And he said, take out centa. (laughs) Sociology. Uh, Tony practices the piano 20 minutes every day. What is the effect? He's a big nerd. American history, where was the American Declaration of Independence signed? At the bottom. (laughs) In the subject of history, what ended in 1896? The answer? 1895. This is one of my favorites. In science, Miranda can't see anything when she looks down her microscope. Suggest one reason why not. The answer? She's blind. (laughs) Uh, Science. Briefly explain what hard water is. Ice. Astronomy. Why are there rings on Saturn? Because God liked it, so he put a ring on it. And I like this one. Uh, This is for you young men. Label this one uh, applied theology, if you will. What are three things you want to do in the future? And here's how the boy answered. Get a girlfriend, kiss her, and rule the world. (laughs) Uh, I got a kick out of that one. Sometimes in life, you know, we we get the answer wrong in a multitude of ways. As we saw last week uh, on the subject of anger, uh, becoming angry is not the answer to life's trials. That is a a wrong response to God's testing uh, and trials. And last week we, we saw three practices that were hopefully there to help us diffuse what I call the ticking time bomb of anger. And that is to listen intentionally, which 
James says we are to be quick to hear. We are to speak cautiously, which is his advice of being slow to speak. And then we are to anger judiciously, which is his advice of being slow to anger. In these three ways, we can diffuse anger, uh, diffuse conflict, diffuse quarrels, and uh, Lord willing, glorify God. If you're not there already, turn to James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. And we'll just pick up where we were last week. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Let me pray. Father, if there is any stubborn sin in our lives, it is the sin of anger. Lord, every one of us struggles in this area in some form or fashion. But we're not hopeless. Because of Christ's sacrifice, because of the indwelling Spirit, Father, we have the hope of change. I pray that your spirit would work through your word to transform our thinking in this area, to to convict us, to bring about a repentance that would indeed lead to life. Father, we want to honor Christ. We We want to be bold witnesses for him. And so I pray that your text would speak to our hearts this morning that our minds would be renewed and, and in, in subsequent action, our, our, our behavior would change. Christ would be honored in our lives. Father, please now work through your word, we pray, for his sake. Amen. So as I said, there are three more uh, practices that will help you diffuse the ticking time bomb of anger. Now, some of us struggle by diffusing anger, by by forcing it inward. Uh, Others uh, explode all over everybody else. We said like like what the Fox News calls homicide bombers. Uh, We we run into a crowd and we explode all over everybody. Uh, Some of us, it's a combination of both. We, We stuff it, stuff it, stuff it till we can't stuff it anymore. And then we explode on everybody. Uh, but the thing about anger is it, it hurts those around us. It causes damage to relationships, and so we need to deal with it in a biblical way. We can't just stuff it. We have to deal with it biblically. And we can't certainly take it out on others. Um, we need to deal with it in a healthy way, in a right way. Uh, and the point is we need to deal with it right now. This is not something to kick the can down the road. This is an area you need to work on now. And so what is it that believers must know and do to overcome anger? Well, the fourth practice, uh, we're just picking up off the last three here. Um, The fourth practice is you must recognize your transgression uh, in verse 19. 
recognize your transgression. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I want you to just look at the text again with me, only this time I want you to look at it, at these instructions uh, that, that James gives us in terms of the opposite, if you will. Think in terms of opposite. This instruction is here because James knows that we have a tendency to respond exactly the opposite of what he's advising us to do. That we, when we've been offended, we do just the, the opposite of what he has suggested. I, I should make that a little more forceful. What he has commanded. So, instead of being uh, quick to hear, we are slow to hear. We're slow to hear. Instead of listening intentionally, we, we plug our ears and we refuse to listen to the other side at all. And I mean really listening intently to what they are trying to communicate to us, right? We jump to conclusions. We demand that we be heard. And we tend to not practice reflective listening. Right? All we know is that we've been offended and somebody flips a switch. And off we go into our knee-jerk reaction. So the all-consuming need of the moment is that we be heard. So we are slow to hear, not quick to hear. Secondly, we are quick to speak instead of being slow to speak. Instead of, as we saw last week, speaking cautiously, we say things we almost instantly regret. We put the other person in their place verbally, right? We downdress them. We, we dominate them and the conversation. We get louder. We get more forceful in our speech. We get bigger. And, and as we're sitting there listening to somebody talk to us, we're thinking about what response we're going to give before we've even heard the other person's point of view. That's how it works. Even if we're right, right? Even if we might be right in this situation, we, we tend to wield truth like a blunt instrument. We could bludgeon everyone in our immediate vicinity like a mace. And unfortunately, we're, we're quick to anger instead of being slow to anger. For many of us, we do not anger judiciously. Instead, anger is usually the first place we go. It's like when you go see the doctor and he takes that hammer and he, and he hammers just below your kneecap, right? And your leg jerks. That's, that's what it's like. It's, it's like somebody offends you and the immediate reaction is anger. We've trained our hearts to respond quickly to defend ourselves and our pride. Where does anger come from? Well, Jesus said this in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, 
thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. It's not what comes from the outside in, it's what comes from the inside out. It is the man's heart that defiles him. It is our heart that gives wind to our anger. Garrett Higby, a a man who wrote a book called Counseling the Hard Cases, he said this, and I think it's very insightful. The person characterized by an angry heart has has a propensity to make an idol of power, control, having their own way, or to be covetous. This person might find themselves making conscious and or unconscious statements like, I want respect, or I want peace, or I can't believe so-and-so. A person who chooses not to deal with an angry heart may be characterized by bitterness, judgment toward others, discontentment, lack of joy, and strained relationships and or continual conflict in relationships. Others might comment that their actions and attitude can be volatile, ungrateful, condemning, grouchy, intimidating, irritable, or difficult. Does that describe you? So in short, you know, because of pride's demand for power and control, we demand our rights. We want what we want when we want it. And that's now. What's the problem with that? The problem is that as a slave of Christ, you have no rights. Because ultimately you are in submission to God. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Christ. It means to give up your rights. Maybe as an American citizen you have rights, but we are citizens of where? Heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, you are called to something higher than that. You are called to humility. Now this is how anger becomes sinful. I adapted this from a book that was written in 1901 by a man named Robert Speer called Christ and Life. But listen to his list of six things. This is how you know anger has ventured into the sinful territory. Because as I said last week, when you look at verse 19, there's an anger that's allowable. We're supposed to be slow to that anger. But that's a judicious anger. Verse 19 or verse 20, that anger is not allowable. Because that anger is somehow trying to achieve God's righteousness, and you can't do it. You can't start with anger and end with God's righteousness. It it won't happen. But listen to this. He says this is how anger becomes sinful. It's a little bit older language, but I'll try to read slow. When to favor a resentment or feud, we imagine an injury done to us. So the idea is we, we want to 
we want to nurture this resentment or feud. And so what we do is we imagine an injury that's been done to us, an offense. And we, we then go to number two, when an injury done to us becomes in our minds greater than it really is. Number three, when without real injury, so there's, there's no real offense, but, in, but what we do is we feel resentment on account of somehow there's pain or inconvenience involved in it. So there's been no real offense, we're just inconvenienced. Fourth, when an indignation rises too high, and overwhelms our ability to restrain ourselves. Fifth, when we gratify resentments by causing pain or harm out of revenge. Gotta check the motive there, huh? Or resentful towards somebody and we turn to revenge. Sixth, when we are so perplexed and angry at sin in our own lives that we readily project anger at the sin we find in others. Boy, that's common with your children, isn't it? You see the sin in their lives and you know the sin in your own life and you hate it. And so you project your hatred of sin on your children. I think he... I think he hit the target on that. You know, we, we need to take stock of the way we respond to situations. Just stop right now and think about what your triggers are. What is it that leads you from a normal conversation to begin to escalate to the point where you then veer off away from what you were originally even talking about and now it's just the fact that you've been offended? And anger is the result. We need to take stock of the way we respond to situations and determine what it is that sets us off. Why are we so offended? And what is it that inflames that dragon within us to come out and burn other people? We really need to recognize our transgression here and understand that anger is typically a result of selfishness and pride. And like Alcoholics Anonymous, in order to deal with anger, what's the first step? You need to recognize that you have a problem. The fifth practice, you must rein in your emotion. Verse 20. James says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And the fact that this verse starts with the word for, notice that in the text, it tips us off that it explains the reason for the preceding statement. In other words, as I said last week, the righteousness of God cannot have its origin in the anger of man. Your sinful anger will never result in God's glory. It won't happen. 
The righteousness of God in the context means the righteousness which God requires. And we only know what God requires because he's communicated it to us through his word, right? And since God himself is the source of righteousness, he is the only one that can determine what true righteousness is, right? And that's why 2 Corinthians is so profound. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. in the context of James, righteousness is not only hearing, but practicing what one knows to be right through God's word. Let me say that again, because it's important. In the context of James, righteousness is not only hearing, but practicing or doing what one knows to be right through God's word. How do you know what's right? You have to read the Word. You have to read the Word. So let me give you an example. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. That's the wisdom of Scripture. That's God's desire for us, that we would be proactive in the area of conflict. Right? Right? Think of conflict like water, you know, that's going to burst out of a dam and get everything flooded. And he says, abandon the quarrel before the water gets out. Proactivity versus reactivity is the key to overcoming anger. I can't say that enough. You have to be proactive rather than reactive. Anger is a reaction, like a knee-jerk reaction. And if you want to overcome it, you have to think long and hard ahead of time about how you're going to respond in certain situations. Instead of letting your emotions rule the day and just respond out of an emotional burst, you have to think. You have to think how you're going to respond. And that means... You have to be so in control of your spirit that reactions come after thought. Right? There's no way around it. Think about how you're going to respond in a situation before you get there. You're in a war. And what do you do for war? You prepare before you go running into the battle, right? You have to know what you're going to do. You have to know how you're going to respond in a given situation. Then you have to prepare for it by disciplining your heart and your mind with the Word of God. There's nothing like taking a stroll through the grocery store and and finding a woman with a small child in there, right? Right? And what, what happens invariably? The child wants something. Their eyes overwhelm them. They see all the candy, all the fun things, and they want it. And what happens when mom says no? 
Temper tantrums. And how many of you have seen a full-blown temper tantrum? Pretty amazing, isn't it? How many of you taught your children to do that? There's not a one of you. But they know that by anger and manipulation and outbursts, they can get what they want. Right? They wear people down. Children are characterized by temper tantrums, not mature believers in Christ. The anger, uh, one author wrote this, he said, anger blows out the lamp of the mind. It's a child's reaction to an adult situation. Another author said this, You can measure the character of a man by the size of the things that make him angry. Those small men are angered by small things. So that's what he's saying. Ed Welch, a a common uh, biblical counselor uh, who's written many books uh, that many of you have probably read, he says, if we're angry with God, we should be reminded that his love is much more sophisticated than we know. Our anger shows that we are small children who think we know what is best. And that's really tapping into what is going on in James here. How can you consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance? And let, it, let endurance have its perfect work in you that what? You'd be complete. Mature. You would be a mature believer. The trials are supposed to mature you. And instead, what's happening in James is these believers are blaming God for the testing. And they're saying, God is testing me or tempting me to sin. Blaming God for their problems. Throwing a temper tantrum. Becoming angry not only with God, but with each other because of the situation they're in. Situations just reveal what's inside. As the pressure amps up, it's like a tea bag being put in hot water. What comes out is the flavor of the tea, but you're the problem, not the situation. The way you're responding to the situation is the problem. So James says you need to rein in your emotions so that it it doesn't get the better of you. You don't want to live a life filled with regret. You don't want to bring reproach upon the name of your Lord and Savior who has purchased you with his blood. It's a matter of your public witness. Your public witness. And it's not just public. I mean, you can't go to work and be Mr. Nice Guy at work and then be the Incredible Hulk when you get home, right? And you know what I mean. As soon as your anger gets out of control, you turn into this big green ugly monster and explode all over your family. 
See, the Hulk's problem is that he, he can't control his anger. And when his anger gets out of control, he turns into this huge person. But for a believer, that's, it's not acceptable. It's unacceptable. And it's dishonoring to God. It's disobedient is what it is. The sixth and final practice, you must rely on your foundation. You must rely on your foundation. He says in verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So just so we're clear, uh, the terms filthiness and wickedness in the context, I believe, refer back to the idea of blaming God for your sin and becoming angry because of it. So the first phrase, all filthiness, uh, is actually looking at the quality of the sin. While the second phrase, all that remains of wickedness, actually refers to the quantity or the volume of their sin. So quality and quantity is here. All filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. All that remains of wickedness literally is an abundance of malice. That's how it literally translates. An abundance of malice. Ascribing ill to God. And in the same way, that's what we do to others. We ascribe ill motives to them. And then we release the kraken. (laughs) Right? So what's the exhortation? Well, James says, laying these things aside which metaphorically means either stripping these things off or removing dirt from your body, it could also be taken to mean the rejection of mental or moral qualities. Put it away. Get it off. Strip it off. Wash it off. Take off the dirty garment of sin and anger. Right? The word laying aside here uh, is what's known as an antecedent aorist participle. Let me explain that. It means grammatically it's describing something that these believers needed to do before they could receive the Word of God. It's a a prerequisite. In order to receive the Word implanted, you need to strip yourself of the anger, the filthy clothes. And that's why I like the idea of the metaphor of stripping off the clothing best. I, I think the visual is helpful. It could be either one of those. But, but the idea here is to strip off the old dirty, soiled clothing of anger, which, by the way, is the same as in Isaiah 64.6. All of your works are like filthy rags. It's the same word. Cleanse yourself through confession and repentance and put on humility and then receive the word implanted. 
So this idea with humility received the word implanted, this is most likely a reference to the parable of the sower, which Jesus taught. Remember that? The book of Matthew. Look over at chapter 4 in James, verses 1 through 10. This is the section, as I told you, where he's dealing with the topic of being slow to anger. So he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says... God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. And then verse 11, Do not speak against one another, brethren. And you could keep reading, but, but here's the point. The chapter starts out with the issue of anger, and what's his advice to overcome the anger? Humility. Two times in that passage he says, Humble yourself. There are ten imperatives in that passage. And twice he says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Strip off the anger. And put on humility. So what's the solution to to infighting and quarrels that the church was experiencing? He's slow to anger, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Put off anger, put off wickedness, put off malice, and instead walk in humility with one another. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians U.S. has ever produced, He said this, and it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think if you hang in there, you'll appreciate what he's saying because it really gets to the the heart of where anger comes from. He said, pride is one chief cause of undue anger. It is because men are proud and exalt themselves in their own hearts that they are revengeful and are apt to to be excited, and to make great things out of little ones that may be against themselves. Yea, they even treat as vices things that are in themselves virtues. 
when they think their honor is touched or when their will is crossed. And it is pride that makes men so unreasonable and rash in their anger and raises it to such a high degree and continues it so long and often keeps up in the form of habitual malice. If men sought not chiefly their own private and selfish interests, but the glory of God and the common good, then their spirit would be a great deal more stirred up in God's cause than in their own. And they would not be prone to hasty, rash, inconsiderate, immoderate, and long-continued wrath with any who might have injured or provoked them. But they would, in a great measure, forget themselves for God's sake, and from their zeal for the honor of Christ, the end they would aim at would be not making themselves great or getting their own will, but the glory of God and the good of their fellow beings. I think that's very insightful. He's saying, practically speaking, you need to go back to your foundation. You need to rein in your emotion and get control. You need to stow your pride. If you want to control something, control yourself and your emotions. Control yourself, not the other person that you're quarreling with. Right? In the vernacular, get a grip. Get a grip and cool off. Then 1 John 1 9, confess your transgression, confess the sin of anger, and, and receive God's forgiveness in Christ. Repent of your sin in the matter, turn away from it, and trust in Christ's forgiveness. It, it doesn't matter who was right or who was wrong. You need to make it your goal to be right with God. First and foremost, you need to confess any sinful anger and make things right with Him as a first priority. The all sinful anger, and you need to write this down, all sinful anger is primarily directed against God. Oh sure, it, it may be taken out on other people if it involves another man a woman or a child yeah you you can take anger out on other people but your sin is primarily directed against god you need to understand that it's god who is offended by your anger and and your anger is a response to god's testing in your life, right? Even if the other person is the one testing you, your response shows that you're not open to God's testing. How are you receiving that testing? Taking it out on other people? Blaming God for your problems? Or are you thanking God? Or being a child of His and being disciplined by Him. 
I have an acronym for you to remember. I'm calling it RAGE. RAGE. R-A-G-E. Right? Because what is it when you're angry? It's RAGE. But I want you to remember this. RAGE means railing against God's end. A different way to look at it. Rage is not an emotion. It's disobedience because you're fighting against God and His end. And His end is to mature you through trials. To make you more Christ-like and you're fighting against Him. I think Jerry Rag was right on this when he said, When we're angry at people and circumstances, we're really lashing out at God's good providence. Instead of kissing the hand that afflicts us, we're demanding that God order our lives by our script, our assessment of people, and our comfort level. We're railing against God's end, and we're taking it out on other people. We need to rely on the truth of the Scriptures. What it reveals to us about God's character and about His requirements. See, God is the source of truth. What does He want? We only know from His revealed will. God Himself is slow to anger. He is abundant in loving kindness. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression. So what you ought you to be like. I think this brings to mind, in my mind, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32 there. 31 and 32, I mean. He's going through this list of what repentance looks like. And down in verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And as as typical with the Apostle Paul, he doesn't leave you hanging there. So you're going to do away with these things, but what are you going to put in its place? Well, verse 32, you're going to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, I'm sorry, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive you? I mean, the word forgiving in that text is the word being gracious. It's being gracious towards one another. It's having a a gracious disposition towards the other person. It's being forgiving, being willing to forgive, letting things go. That's what a repentant heart looks like. All the ugly stuff, the sliding scale of anger, I call it, the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor, the slander, and all malice, that's a, an amping up of a scale All of that needs to be put away. It needs to be put off like filthy rags. And instead, what are you going to put on? Tenderness, kindness, graciousness, 
forgiveness. Right? That's what a Christian looks like. That's what a mature believer looks like. And you can't do this in the flesh. And I think I can't say this enough. If you try to do this in the flesh, you'll fail. I mean, the book of Galatians is clear about that. Right? Chapter 5. This uh, flesh versus the spirit struggle here in the context, it's corporate. What do I mean by corporate? It, It means it's not so much the individual dealing with their flesh versus their spirit. It's talking about the spiritual battle that rages between people. And we know that because, look, uh, verse 13, it says, You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Right? And then over there in verse 26, where it closes, it's like an inclusio. He says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. See, the flesh versus the spirit struggle, it doesn't take place in a vacuum, beloved. There are people around you. And it affects them. It affects them. These sins of the flesh, right? The deeds of the flesh, verse 19, those require other people. Look at this. Strife, jealousy, verse 20. Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. The greater part of that list, which by the way is a representative list, it's not a full list, it's just a part of a list. But the majority of that list deals with sins of anger. That's what the deeds of the flesh are. Right? Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy is right there. So the, the, the rule here is that if you try to keep the law, you're going to disobey it every time. Right? That's the rule. If you try to keep the law, you'll break it every single time. But if you walk in the Spirit, you'll become a doer of the law. That's what Paul is after here. And so what is the fruit of the Spirit? By the way, Spirit begets Spirit. Flesh begets what? Flesh. So you can't start with flesh and expect spiritual things. You can't start with anger and expect to have love and peace come as an outcome. Right? So, so what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's, it's what? It's self-control. Are you going to be like that child throwing a temper tantrum in the grocery store? Or are you going to be controlled? Are you going to think before you respond? Or are you going to be ready, fire, aim? 
You've got you to think about this. Uncontrolled temper, uh, Jerry Bridges says, is soon dissipated on others. Resentment, bitterness, and self-pity build up inside our hearts and eat away at our spiritual lives like a slowly spreading cancer. I, I simply cannot impress upon you enough the need to put away your anger. You know, with somebody struggling with alcohol and drunkenness, it's not the liquor that's the problem. It's the use of the liquor, but it's what happens after they drink the liquor, which is what? It's the outburst of anger. What scars the children in the home or the wife and what makes them walk around on eggshells is they don't know what's going to set the person off. The anger, it's the outburst of anger. And the alcohol is just a pathway to that. Cannot impress upon you enough the need to put away your anger. It will not only consume you, but like a cancer, it will metastasize. It will spread like a cancer to those around you and the rest of the body of Christ. I want to challenge you this morning. If, if you struggle in this area, if you struggle with anger, seek the help of an older, more mature believer. Somebody who may be able to help you overcome this sin for God's glory. The anger's roots, it can run long and deep. And sin can cast long shadows. And sometimes it helps to just have an objective, neutral, but, but caring person involved to help you sort through the issues that might be leading to your sinful responses. Sometimes we need help. We can't see out of the forest. We're just down there among the trees, and we can't see what it looks like from the treetops. We're just lost in our sin. Sometimes others can help. In fact, I know they can help. So here they are. Applied theology. (laughs) Six practices to help you overcome the the ticking time bomb of sinful anger. You're going to listen intentionally. Right? You're going to speak cautiously. You're going to anger judiciously. You're going to recognize your transgression. You're going to rein in your emotion. And you're going to rely on your foundation. Right? These are tools to help you defuse the bomb before it goes off. May God grant His grace and mercy to help us to be victorious in this struggle for His glory. Amen? Let's pray.